right, so on the Thursday evening before his crucifixion, you guys know this by now, Jesus met with his 11 disciples, 12 disciples at first, Judas left, but he met with his disciples in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, during that time, Jesus did four things that they always would remember to the end of their lives, okay? This is what he did. First of all, he washed his disciples' feet. That was back in chapter 13. You remember it if you were here. And why did he do that? Well, the reason that he did that is because he wanted to give them an example of the best kind of leadership, which is servant leadership. Okay, I wanna encourage you guys, remind you guys of what we talked about a couple months ago, that man, if you're a leader and you have some people that uh, you are influencing, yes, uh, correct them when they're wrong, correct them in love. Yes, challenge them when they need to be challenged, but make sure you're serving them and make sure you're loving them and encouraging them as well. They will love you as a boss if you'll do that. But also, I wanna encourage um, you moms and dads, man, serve your kids that way as well. Uh, Be servant leaders. And always remember you're a parent before you're their friend. Jesus also ate the Last Supper with his men, right? We um, famously call it the Last Supper. It was actually a Passover meal there in the upper room. Now, why did he do that? Well, he took the bread and he took the cup because he wanted them to know that the bread and the wine were now symbols of his broke, soon-to-be broken body and shed blood. And he wanted them to, quote, do this in remembrance of me. Now, I want you to hear Jesus' heart. He's not just telling 11 guys in an upper room. He's telling all of us here today as well, do this in remembrance of me. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. And so I wanna encourage you guys, if you didn't know, here at Calvary PSL, we follow the Lord's command once a month on the first Thursday of the month at 6.30 right in this room. And so this past Thursday, three days ago, uh, we met, uh, we worshiped the Lord in spirit and in truth. Pastor Tiago gave a wonderful devotion. We had communion. We did it in remembrance of him. And then after that, we had the privilege, get this, if you weren't here, um, you'll rejoice to know that we had the privilege of baptizing 19 people just three days ago. Isn't that wonderful? 19 people stepped up and said, I'm going public with my faith in Jesus Christ. And so not only did he wash the disciples' feet, not only did he have the Last Supper with them, but he also taught them the upper room discourse. Why? Well, he was training them in chapters 14, 15, 16. He was equipping them for their future ministries of taking the gospel to the world. And so Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12 says that God gave pastors to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So one of the reasons that I'm called here to be your pastor is the Lord wants me to equip you for the work of ministry, and uh, one of the best ways that we can do that is teaching the word of God, and I wanna thank you again for being here today. And so the Lord washed his disciples' feet, He ate the the Last Supper with them. He taught the upper room discourse, but there was one more thing that still needed to be done before the son went to the father. You say, what's that? Well, number four, Jesus still needed to pray for his friends. He needed to intercede for them. And so you and I have now come to John chapter 17. John 17 
which records what's known as the high priestly prayer. All right, so what's the high priestly prayer? The high priestly prayer is an intimate intercession from the Son to the Father in the upper room, right, as he prays for himself, as he prays for his 11 disciples, his friends, and believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, he also prayed for you and for me 2,000 years ago. And so, man, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. This prayer is the longest prayer of Christ recorded in the Gospels, and as we're gonna see in a moment, um, it's a gem. So the prayer can be divided into three parts. Number one, Jesus prayed for himself, as I just mentioned. That's gonna be verses one through five. We'll look at that today. Number two, Jesus prayed for his current disciples, the 11 in the upper room. Remember, Judas already left to betray the Lord. And we're gonna get through half of that today, verses six through 19. Lord willing, I wanna stop at verse 12, unless it's pouring outside, and then we'll just keep going. All right, and then number three, Jesus prayed for his future disciples. We'll see that next week uh, in verses 20 through 26. Now, it's the third section of the prayer where Jesus prayed for you and me. Isn't it a wonderful thing, ladies and gentlemen, that he prayed for us 2,000 years ago? And listen to this, he's still praying for us right now today. It's a wonderful thing. You say, where do you get that from? I get that from the Bible, Romans chapter eight, verse 34. Paul is writing to Christians here, and some of these Christians are living by their feelings instead of by faith. And so they're feeling condemned for the sins that they've been committing. And here's what Paul does, he encourages them. What does he say? He said, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see it? He's interceding, praying for us. And so if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you need to know that Romans 8.1, okay, I just read Romans 8.34, but Romans 8.1 says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I'm here, like Paul was there 2,000 years ago, I'm here to encourage you, Christian, to build you up, right? To let you know that, hey, maybe you did something a year ago, five years ago. Maybe you did something yesterday, right? Listen to the word of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Who's gonna condemn you? Who in the world's gonna condemn you? Jesus Christ is on your side. He died for you, he was raised for you, and if that's not enough for you, he's also praying for you right now. I mean, what more could we ask for than what Jesus Christ has done and is doing for us and will do in the future? And so because you are in Christ, I want everybody to say in Christ, go ahead. Because you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Because you're in Christ, you're clothed not with your self-righteousness, no. You are clothed, Romans says, with the righteousness of God. Therefore, when God looks at you, Christian, because you're in Christ, he doesn't see your sin or my sin, he sees the righteousness of his son. Therefore, we are not condemned, we're saved. We're not pronounced guilty, we've been acquitted by the blood of the lamb. Okay, so that's your position. Rejoice in it. There's half of you clapping right now. Clap for the Lord, please. You guys at home, clap for the Lord, please. This is your identity in Christ. You say, this is just too good to be true. 
It's called the gospel. Gospel means good news. And so, two weeks ago, we concluded chapter 16, which was the instruction portion of the upper room discourse. Today, we're going to start chapter 17, where Jesus is going to move from the instruction portion of the upper room discourse to the intercession portion of the upper room discourse. In other words, it's time now for Jesus to pray. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter 17, verse 1, can you say amen? amen. Now, you guys tell me, I'm going to see if you've been listening for the last month. What is our New Year's resolution here at Calvary? Bring your Bibles. Bring your Bibles. Okay, so if you don't have a Bible, don't feel bad. Okay, just grab your phone. Don't go to Facebook. Go to John 17, ESV. All right, so we're starting John 17. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. All right, so Jesus opened his prayer by acknowledging that his hour, his hour had come. Okay, what was he referring to when he talked about his hour? Well, he wasn't talking about 60 minutes, right? That's a metaphor. Um, it's, it's a metaphor for his suffering, his death, and not just that, his resurrection and his ascension. And so for three years, More than that, his whole life, right? Or almost his whole life, Jesus has been anticipating the hour, right? And now, Thursday night, man, it has come upon him. Here in just a little while, just a few hours, right? Judas is gonna betray him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And not just that, he's gonna be arrested by the mob. And not just that, they're gonna turn him over to the religious leaders. And what are they gonna do? They're going to blindfold him, spit in his face, hit him in the face with the palms of their hands. And then they're going to turn him over to the Romans because the Jews did not have the power for capital punishment at that time in their history. They turn him over to the Romans to be killed. What do the Romans do? The Romans open up his back with a cat of nine tails. And not just that, the Romans beat up on him some more. And not just that, they also mock him and they beat the crown of thorns into his head and they nail him to a cross. It's all part of the hour. And he did it for you and me. And he hung on the cross for six hours, gasping for air and bleeding profusely and dying for the sins of all humanity. But aren't you glad that his hour didn't just end with his suffering and his death? His hour also concluded his resurrection three days after he died, and 40 days after that, it includes his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so we're glad for that. Why? Because at at his ascension, the Father would glorify him. All right, so what does the word glorify mean? It means to honor, to clothe with splendor. It means to make renowned, to make famous, All right, and so look at what Jesus prayed again in verse one. 
Halfway down verse one, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. All right, so how did the son glorify the father? Here's how he did it. He embraced his hour. He didn't run away from his hour. He embraced his hour. He embraced the suffering. He embraced the mockery. He embraced the spitting. He embraced the whipping. He embraced the cross. And that's how he glorified the Father. Why? Because thus, by doing that, he actually fulfilled the Father's plan of redemption for you and me so we could be redeemed. And how did the Father glorify the Son? Well, the way the Father glorified the Son was when his Son ascended into heaven, right? So he dies for our sins. He's buried. Three days later, he gets up, marches out of the tomb. Forty days after that, in his resurrected body, he ascends back into heaven. And what did the Father do? The Father honored the Son. The Father clothed him with splendor. The Father made his name famous. Answered prayer. And so can you, I want you to try to picture it. I know it's hard, right? A, pat, a picture, the resurrected Christ, right? And he is ascending back into heaven. What are the angels doing? I'm sure the angels are praising the Lord, celebrating, having a party, right? Because they know now, man, they get to spend eternity with all of us who've turned to Christ, right? And not just that, what's the father doing? Can you see it? The father's greeting his son. The father's saying, well done, son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's Old Testament, but it's applicable to what's happening right now at the ascension. And the father honors the son, closes, closes him with splendor, makes his name absolutely famous. I want you to picture, right, not millions, but B, billions of believers over the last two thousand years, whenever they transitioned from earth to heaven, right? They go to heaven. How many of you guys are looking forward to heaven someday, right? And they're, they're going into heaven, right? And what are they doing? They're going into the throne room and they're falling down and they're saying, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It reminds me of Philippians, right? A parallel passage to where we are in John 17. Paul says, he, Christ, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born, incarnation, in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, stop right there. How did the Son glorify the Father? He embraced his hour. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did the Father glorify the Son? Next verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of, everybody shout out his name, Jesus, every knee, every knee, whether you believe in this stuff or not, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's been happening for 2,000 years. We're not aware of it, but we are aware of it if we just open our Bibles, because it's right there. And so man, praise God, the Father 
glorified the Son, praise God, the Son glorified the Father. By the way, before I go off that screen, let me just say that it's way better to bow your knee willingly in this life than being forced to bow your knee unwillingly in the next life. Way better to bow your knee while you're up here on earth than being forced to bow your knee when you're under the earth in hell because you rejected Christ. Yes, there is a hell. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But there's a hell. And he will respect your free will. And so man, if you don't know Christ, listen, we were all there at one point in our lives. No one's born saved. But before you get sick, can be saved, you gotta realize and admit you're lost and you need a savior. So if you don't know the Lord, please do not let the sun set today. Turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith today so you can enter that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so you can have eternal life. He describes eternal life in verse three. Can you look at verse three, please? He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so what does Jesus do here? He describes eternal life as knowing the Father and the Son. Knowing, it's a relationship. Ladies and gentlemen, religion cannot save you. Religion can't save anybody. Religion does not save. It's a relationship with the Father through the Son. And so again, if you don't have that relationship, because listen, you may ask, how does that relationship begin? Okay, I just said it a little while ago. You turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and the Lord of your life. That's how you enter into this relationship, and the relationship is what changes lives. Religion doesn't change lives. Relationship with the true God and his son, Jesus Christ, that changes lives. And you know what happens down the road through sanctification? Marriages become stronger. You know what happens down the road through sanctification? Kids grow up in Christ-centered homes, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know what happens as a result of sanctification? Churches are filled up. And not just that, they go out. Speaking, living the gospel. And the next thing you know, they're supporting, resource churches are supporting unresourced churches around the world in other parts of the, of the world. And next thing you know, the Great Commission is being fulfilled and I could go on and on and on forever. Do you guys see why you're here today? You're not just here to check a box. You're here to be part of a movement. It's Christ. It's Christianity. All right, let's look at verse four now. He says in verse four, Father, I glorified you on earth. That's for sure having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I love verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. This will blow your minds. Before the world existed. 
Love it. And the father answered the prayer. That leads you to your next point. After finishing his redemptive work and returning to heaven, the son was glorified in the presence of the father with the same glory that he enjoyed before creation. You see what that means? That means that Jesus Christ was not created. He's the creator. That means that after he ascended into heaven, the son, mission accomplished, sat down at the right hand of the father. He was clothed, glorified, he was clothed with splendor and glory just as he had splendor and glory before the world existed. But now, after the ascension, there's one thing that's different about Jesus. Here it is. In the beginning was the word. Okay, the beginning, for those of you who are new to the Bible, what is the beginning? It's the beginning of the creation of the space-time material universe. In the beginning, John 1, 1 says, look at this, was the word. What does that mean? That means the word already existed before the world. In the beginning was the word. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What, what are we saying here? Jesus Christ is eternal. So the people that knock on your doors on Saturday, please don't buy into what they're teaching. It's a false Jesus. You say, who's that? Jehovah Witnesses. No problem saying it publicly. It's a false Christ. But right back to what I'm saying here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word right? Was God, not a God. (laughs) Please have mercy, God. He was God. All right, then you go down to verse 14. And the word, God, Christ, the word was made flesh. Was made flesh. What does that mean? What that means is that before his incarnation, the son was fully God, one in being, one in nature, one in essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But at his incarnation, the Son added humanity to his deity and he became a man. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. There is in heaven today a glorified man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. All right, so what's he doing up there? What is he doing right there, up there? What is the name of our message today and next week? It's the high priestly prayer. What is he doing right now at the right hand of the Father? He's praying for you. He knows what's going on. He knows the hardship that you're going through. He knows that difficult situation that you're trying to navigate through. He knows the storm. Not just little storms, but he knows the the, the metaphorical storms right now that you're going through. He loves you, he cares, and he's whispering in the Father's ear on your behalf right now. I, I know it's hard to accept, I know it's hard to believe, I know it's like bing, bing, right, like we keep saying, but it's true because God's word is true. He is absolutely praying for you. After he ushered in the new covenant through his death and resurrection, Jesus, the God-man, became your high priest. And as your high priest, he's involved in a very important ministry. It's the ministry of intercession. This is what he does. This is what he loves to do. He loves praying for you and for me. 
We see this in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, whoever he was, right, he compares the, the high priests under the old covenant with Jesus Christ, the God-man, our high priest under the new covenant. Check it out. Hebrews says this, the former priests, right, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood, what's the word there? Permanently, because he continues for how long? Forever. And so under the old covenant, various men from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, they were the high priests of Israel. But their ministry was temporary because the old covenant was temporary and it was also temporary for them because these guys kept dying. But then the one who brought in the better covenant came, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying for you. Just keep drawing near to God through him. Keep drawing near to God through him. You say, but it hurts. I know it hurts. Keep drawing near to God through him. He doesn't promise to remove the storm. He promised to be with you in the storm. Keep drawing near to God through him. And so, man, I am so grateful we're not under the old covenant. Can you imagine offering animal sacrifices over and over and over? Praise God. We don't need to offer animal sacrifices over and over and over. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he offered himself up once for all on the cross for the sins of the whole world. That's what Christ did. That's new covenant. That's new covenant. Praise God. We don't need human high priests anymore. Why? Because we have Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. What does that mean? That means that right now, in heaven, Christ has a body, and guess what the body has? We'll show the picture again. Scars. What does that mean? That is an eternal reminder of the price that he paid for you and I to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He'll always have the scars, forever and ever and ever. Therefore, Christian, Think through this for, with me for a second. You know what the devil, um, you know what the devil does? He accuses you. Satan, the adversary, he accuses you over and over and over. He goes before the Father and accuses you. You say, why is he allowed to do that? I don't know, I have no idea. It's in the book of Job. If it's in the Bible, I believe it, even though I don't understand it. Okay, so he's, he accuses us, but here's the good news. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the new covenant. When the devil goes before the Father and he accuses you, he did this, she did that. Do you know what your high priest does for you? He intercedes for you. That's what he loves doing. And you know what else he does? As your advocate, your defense attorney, he lifts up his nail-scarred hand and he says, you guys are so excited, I can't even finish my sentence. All right, we'll praise him first before I say it. Yeah, you know where I'm going, right? 
Okay, now, I want you to clap for the Lord again because here's what your defense attorney does. He lifts up his hand, and what he says is, zip it, devil, I paid the price on Calvary for their sins. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. So listen, it's the devil who's condemning you. God is not condemning you. You say, but you don't know what I did. He does, and he knows what I've done. It's under the blood. It's washed in the blood of the lamb. Now, I gotta always say this, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, no. But my goodness, you see what his ministry is right now? What more could God do for us? It's all because of his grace. All right, look at verse six now. He says, I have manifested, he's still praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, this is amazing here. We gotta put the brakes on, because Jesus right here is clearly speaking of the elect. I know that word makes people nervous, because you know all the arguing that's been going on for 500 years um, between the Calvinists over here and those who ascribe to Arminianism over here. And it's so sad that there's been this fight going on for 500 years when it's such a beautiful doctrine in the New Testament. Did you know that the Lord right here in John 17, six is speaking about the elect? You can't deny election, it's in the New Testament. And it's not some fuzzy doctrine, it's clear, very clear. Okay, so he's talking here about the elect, who according to Ephesians 1.4, were chosen before the foundation of the world. Okay, he's talking about the elect, who according to 1 Peter 1.2, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what does he say in verse six? He says that the elect are a gift, a love gift, from the Father to the Son. Do you guys see that? And it's so important to him. Did you know Jesus repeats this five times in his high priestly prayer? So what I did, because I've read it and read it and read it and just skipped right over it, right? But So I started to highlight it. And so I wanna take you through it. So you remember our New Year's resolution. I hope you have your Bible. And I want you to look at verse two. I'm gonna show you the five times. Verse two, he's praying to the Father. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, here it is, to all whom you have given him. You see it? All, that's the elect, whom you, the Father, have given him, the Son. The elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Look at verse six, he says it again. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And then he says it again. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, <laughs> and they have kept your word. Okay, so now that's three times. Look at verse nine. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, <laughs> for they are yours. That's four times. But then, we'll see this next week, look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me. And so once again, I want to impress this truth on your minds and hearts today 
that if you're part of the elect, you're a gift. You're a gift from the Father to the Son. It's amazing to me. And you might say, well, how do I become part of the elect? Does God need to choose me, or do I need to choose his son? If you're listening right now, say amen. Amen. Everybody listening at home, please say amen. Here's my answer. Both. Both. The problem that we have in the church, in the fight, is that people over here are like taking their, their truth, and they're so emphasizing it, and they're not emphasizing this over here. And the problem with these people, they're so emphasizing this that they're not emphasizing this. And the answer is, ladies and gentlemen, again, how do I become part of the elect? Does God need to choose me, or do I need to choose his son? The answer is both. We covered this back in chapter six. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me. By the way, he said it again. (laughs) The elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we see here both God's sovereignty in choosing us and our responsibility to choose Christ. He says, all that the Father gives me, that is God's sovereignty in choosing us. But then he goes on to say, and whoever comes to me, you and I have a responsibility to come to Christ. That is our responsibility to choose Christ. And I love the end. I'll never cast them out. That, by the way, is called eternal security. And so Peter helps us to understand that God's sovereignty in choosing us and his foreknowledge of us choosing Christ go together. They coincide. Now, I want to pause right here. None of this is in the notes, but I just feel compelled to say it. So I think this is the third time I've said it this weekend. So I want to encourage you guys about something. I I have seen in the past where, you know, you, you have pastors encouraging pastors, like things like conferences and stuff. And one of the things that that they'll say is, you always gotta keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. Well, well, here's my dilemma. You guys can pray for me. That we have a church that's filled with people that are at all different kind of levels spiritually. We got people that just got saved last Sunday in our church. We got people that have been saved for a year, five years, 10 years. Some of you guys have been saved for 30 plus years. And you know what I'm called to do as a pastor? I'm not called to always keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. I'm called to, I'm called to feed the whole flock of God the word of God. The whole flock of God the word of God. The whole flock of God the word of God. That means that I gotta figure out with the help of the Holy Spirit to have some stuff on the bottom shelf, the middle shelf, and the top shelf because I am called, John 21, to feed, feed, feed. That's what I do. Okay, so what are we doing now? We're going way up here on the top shelf, okay? Or if you wanna use another metaphor, we're going deeper. But listen, I don't wanna insult your intelligence every single week by keeping the cookies on the bottom shelf where a kindergartner can, can understand it. That's not what I'm called to do. So here's my encouragement. Don't check your mind at the door of the church. Engage your mind because we have a reasonable faith. All right, so Dr. Ron Rhodes, who was one of my former professors in seminary, 
He said, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge. Can you guys say foreknowledge? Now there are people, theologians, that I respect, and they think that foreknowledge only means predetermination. And I disagree respectfully with them. Okay, so we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. There is no chronological or logical priority of election and foreknowledge. As a simple being, doesn't mean that God is not smart, it means he's absolutely one. As a simple being, all of God's attributes are one with his indivisible essence. Hence, both foreknowledge and predetermination are one in God. Now, I love this. The reason I love this is because when this certain professor came to conclusions about the doctrine of election, he didn't forget about God's nature. Let me say that again. When this theologian came to conclusions about the doctrine of election, he did not forget God's essence and nature. God is simple. That means God is absolutely one. That means that all of his attributes, including foreknowledge and predetermination, are one with his essence and his nature. Therefore, Dr. Rhodes continues, there is no unfolding of thoughts in God's mind. I know some of your minds are blowing right now, but what you gotta understand is that we're finite, we think chronologically, God is outside the timeline and he's infinite. He dwells in the eternal now. Thus, whatever God knows, he determines, and whatever he determines, he knows, more properly, we should speak of God as knowingly determining and determinately knowing from all eternity, all eternity, everything that happens, now here's the important part, including all, what kind of acts? Okay, so that's the hard way to put it. Let me put, the, put it real easy. God is absolutely sovereign and he respects your free will. Both, both are absolutely true. And so if you wanna learn more about this topic, I think this is the fifth time in 12 months I put this book. You know, if some of you guys would actually just buy the book and read it, maybe I would stop putting it up on the screen so much. But I can't shake it. And by the way, you say, why are you talking about this? It's where we are in the Bible. We don't skip anything here. Okay, so chosen but free, a balanced view of God's sovereignty and free will. I think it's a biblical view. Dr. Norman Geisler, by the way, quick side note, um, he's uh, somebody that impacted my life in a big, big way. He's in heaven now with the Lord, um, but I think he's one of the greatest theologians in the last 100 years. And he uh, co-founded two seminaries. One seminary is where I got my master's degree in theology. It's called Veritas International University. And the other one he founded, co-founded earlier than that, Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte. And so I'm, I'm currently an audit student at SES, and I love being an audit student. You know why? I don't have to turn in any work. I don't have to take tests. I don't have to write papers. But I can still be a lifelong learner. You know why I do that? The reason I do that is because I wanna be the best pastor I can be for you guys. That's my heart. That's my heart. Man, I'm your shepherd. God's given you as my flock, and I, I just wanna be the best shepherd I can be. So I wanna be a lifelong learner. And thank God my education's over, and I don't have to turn any more assignments, but 
I wanna keep learning. Chosen but free is the book, God's Sovereignty and Free Will. All right, let's start winding down, but stay with me to the end, okay? Look at verse seven. Now they know. So Jesus is praying to the Father for the disciples. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Okay, what's that, Lord? Verse eight. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. That's a good thing. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So praise the Lord. What is Jesus doing here in his prayer? He's encouraging the faith of the disciples. They didn't understand everything the Lord would say. Of course they didn't. We've read about that over and over and over again in our studies of the Bible, of the the Gospels. But here's what they had done. They had come to the place in their lives where they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They accepted it. And then after his death, resurrection, and ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, man, the light bulb really goes on as the Holy Spirit starts to show them from the what we call the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures, all the prophecies that have been fulfilled in Christ, the prophecies of his death, the prophecies of his burial, his resurrection. It's all there, Isaiah 53, Psalm 1610, Psalm 22, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Holy Spirit is enlightening these guys, and of course, they write the New Testament. Look at verse nine. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, before you come to any wrong conclusions, I just want to say this. Since the disciples were the focus of Christ's prayer, Jesus didn't pray for the world at this time. So it doesn't mean, you know, look again at verse nine. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, right? Because, you know, I didn't choose them. I don't care about them. I'm praying only for the elect. That's not what he's saying here. He's focusing right now on the disciples. That's what he's doing in the upper room. Chapters 14, 15, 16, he's focusing on them with instruction. Chapter 17, now he's focusing on them in intercession. And what he's doing is he's, as he's focusing on the disciples, he says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them. But here's what you need to know. Christ loves the world. And Christ does pray for the world. You know why he's focusing on the disciples here in the upper room? He's equipping them to go out to the world and to share the good news with the world. And so, man, please don't try to make the Bible say something that it's not saying here and do damage to the character of Christ, okay? And so he says now in verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Okay, so Jesus right here is concerned. He's been protecting them and guarding them, but now he's going away. So what is his prayer halfway down verse 11? Keep. Can everybody say the word keep? Keep. So the word keep means protect, guard. It's like a shepherd, right? Protecting his sheep. And so I'm going away. I'm not gonna be here to keep them, protect them, guard them. So Father, you keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
And so we're gonna get a lot into this whole thing of unity in the church next week, but here's your last verse. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them, I protected them, I guarded them. In your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Yikes. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And so, you guys know his name. Who's he talking about here? Judas. So on the outside, Judas looked like a believer. He crossed all his T's, dotted all his I's, checked all his religious box, boxes. He looked like a believer. But on the inside, he was not a believer. The disciples thought he was legitimate. Why? You guys can help me out with this. You know this verse. Man looks at what kind of appearance? Outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. So he did a good job faking out everybody, but you can't fake out the Lord, right? Jesus could see right into his heart. And what Jesus saw led him to say this earlier in the gospel, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And so when Jesus looked into his heart, Judas's heart, what did he see? He saw rebellion and unbelief. Now, what you need to know is that the Lord sees all of our hearts this morning. Now, this afternoon. <laughs> he sees all of our hearts. And he knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. So when he looks into your heart, what does he see? 